The failure of the Staffords and Francis Lovell to galvanised Yorkist support against the new Tudor king did not mean that any attempt to unseat Henry was doomed to failure. As ever, hindsight affords us the luxury of knowing that all attempts failed. But folk of the time, especially the key political players, could be forgiven for thinking that perhaps another king was only just around the corner. We must therefore put ourselves in their shoes to grasp why they did what they did. Some Yorkist supporters believed, and I can understand why, that the revolts failed because the rebels had failed to rally around an actual Yorkist prince. Clearly, the new king had possession of the most obvious Yorkist heir, Edward Earl of Warwick, son of George Duke of Clarence. It would be difficult, therefore, for the young earl to be put at the head of a rebel army. But there were other possible claimants, notably a plethora of de la Pole brothers, the sons of Richard III's sister, Elizabeth, Duchess of Suffolk. The eldest of these, John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, had been named heir by Richard III, but had made his peace with Henry VII after Bosworth, as did his brother Edmund. But how long would these two Yorkist lords remain loyal? Would they be tempted by the prospect of royal power? What we can say is that there were not hordes of people urging them to lead a rebellion, nor did they seem to attract a great deal of personal support. We can assume that because when eventually John Earl of Lincoln did rebel, it was not to press his own claim, a bit of a disappointment really, because otherwise we might have had a second King John. But I digress. What he did do was attempt to put on the throne a ten-year-old Oxford boy, a commoner, who it was claimed was Edward Earl of Warwick. His real name was Lambert Simnel. But in May 1487, he was crowned King Edward VI in Dublin in Ireland. Now, of course, John Earl of Lincoln must have been very well aware that the real Edward Earl of Warwick was under close supervision in the Tower of London. So what on earth was going on? Because this sounds crazy, even by Wars of the Roses standards. Well, in order to explain, I need to take a diversion and look into what was going on in Ireland in this period. We have to go back 40 years. Now, don't panic because we're not going back for long. But back in 1447, our old friend Richard Duke of York, remember him, the architect of the Yorkist bid for the English throne, was appointed as the king's lieutenant in Ireland. At the time, Henry VI and his advisers intended for York to be banished from the main arena of power, to be sidelined and made irrelevant in English politics. Well, that backfired spectacularly because what York achieved in Ireland was exactly the opposite. He established a significant and lasting power base there. In fact, he already had a connection with Ireland as Earl of Ulster. Now, the most powerful men in Ireland were known as the Anglo-Irish Lords, men who held their lands and titles from the English king. And the thing was that the English king was very rarely ever in Ireland. So instead, he was represented by a lieutenant. Well, obviously, when York was lieutenant, he was acting increasingly 
in his own interests rather than Henry VI's, and thus was able to make Ireland a Yorkist stronghold, both a place of refuge and a source of support. During the late 1440s and 1450s, York gained the personal support of many of the key Irish lords, notably Thomas Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare. The support of these lords, when York's fortunes were at a low ebb in 1459, was undoubtedly helpful to him, but it meant that the Irish lords were certain to want something in return, something he was in no position to refuse. What they wanted was the virtual independence of Ireland from English rule. Thus, when York's son, Edward IV, became king in 1461, he found himself in an awkward position as far as Ireland was concerned. The Anglo-Irish lords expected to be given more or less a free hand in Ireland. Edward's attempt to re-establish royal control by the appointment of the brutal John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, as his new lieutenant, did little more than alienate some of the Irish lords. By the 1470s, Edward IV had stopped worrying too much about Ireland and left it very much under the control of the Earl of Kildare. Richard III, during his brief tenure as king, was also not in a position to reassert royal control in Ireland. So we come to 1485 and the arrival of a new king in Henry VII, who, despite his hard core of Yorkist supporters, emphasised his Lancastrian descent. This gave Kildare and his fellow lords in Ireland a decision to make. Should they cut all ties with York and support the new king, or should they emphasise their Yorkist connections and attempt to remove the Lancastrian king? In 1486, they decided to throw in their lot with the disaffected elements of the House of York and, by doing so, hoped to keep control over Ireland. Edward Earl of Warwick had a special appeal to the Irish, because his father, Clarence, had been born in Dublin. Thus, they saw Clarence's heir as one of their own. Except, of course, the boy they crowned wasn't Warwick, he was an imposter. He had been trained up by a priest, Richard Simons. But it seems very unlikely that Simons woke up one day and off his own bat decided to train up an imposter to the English throne. John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, must have been involved early on. The first Henry seems to have heard of it was in January 1487, and even a month later he clearly had no inkling that Lincoln was involved because the Earl was at a council meeting where the plot was actually being discussed. Henry paraded the real Earl of Warwick through the streets of London, though who among the common people would have the slightest idea what Warwick actually looked like. Not long after, Lincoln fled to Flanders to join Francis Lovell and seek support from that eternal Yorkist optimist, Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy. Consequently, throughout April 1487, Henry expected an attack to be launched from Burgundy upon East Anglia or perhaps Essex. In that region, the Earl of Oxford's loyalty was beyond doubt. But what about Lincoln's father, the Duke of Suffolk? 
Suffolk was not a man likely to rebel against anyone, but it would surely put him in a very difficult position. And then there was the Marquis of Dorset, who had shown himself to be untrustworthy in the past. Henry arrested Dorset just in case, and I can't say I blame him. Nevertheless, the anticipated attack in the East never materialised, because Lincoln and Lovell went to Ireland instead, assisted by the Duchess of Burgundy, who provided a couple of thousand German mercenaries. Their arrival must have given Kildare and his fellow Irish lords much encouragement, which is why they went on to crown Simnel as Edward VI, and to provide soldiers for an invasion force. Meanwhile, Henry waited at Kenilworth, knowing that the invasion, since it was coming from Ireland, must now come on the west coast. Sure enough, by the 4th of June, Lincoln and his allies landed at Furness in Lancashire. They were attempting to do to Henry VII what he had done to Richard III. In other words, arrive with only a small army and gather more support en route from disaffected supporters of Richard III, then force a showdown with the king in battle. Once he heard of the landing, King Henry moved to Nottingham to wait for the Stanleys to join him and to see which way Lincoln would go. Lincoln crossed the Pennines into Yorkshire, where he hoped to swell his army considerably. Then he headed south towards Newark. On the 14th of June, Lord Strange, you'll remember that he was Thomas Stanley's eldest son, joined Henry at Nottingham with a very large army. Also present were at least three earls, including Oxford, who would command Henry's vanguard. Later acts of attainder suggest that no earls, apart from Lincoln himself, were in the rebel ranks. Henry, confident of his support, advanced towards the rebels, and the two armies met near Stoke on the 16th of June. Little is known about the battle itself, no surprise there, but it does appear that beyond those men the rebels brought with them, they received minimal support in England, and small wonder after so much uncertainty. It seems likely that only a small part of Henry's army was involved in the actual battle, and a few historians have commented that perhaps some were waiting to see how the battle went, as at Bosworth. But that seems unlikely. Nearer the mark is that Henry simply did not need to use the rest of his army, because the rebels, though determined, were simply too heavily outnumbered. The rebel ringleaders were killed, including John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, and possibly Francis Lovell. Whether Lovell was killed or not, nothing more was ever heard of him. The boy, Lambert Simnel, was put to work in the royal kitchen, presumably to emphasise his common origins. But since he ended up as the king's falconer, I suppose you could say that he did okay out of the whole fiasco. Unlike his mentor, the priest Richard Simons, who was imprisoned for life. So, what did this little episode mean in the context of Henry's reign? Since it did not come close to unseating the king, you could argue that it was an abject failure, which was dealt with effectively by the king. However, I'm sure it would have had a serious impact upon Henry, who in the period leading up to Bosworth had lived through the experience from the opposite point of view. He knew very well that such madcap schemes could succeed 
if the conditions were right. It must have rocked him a great deal too that a lord sitting within his council had secretly been plotting against him. A stray arrow was all that was needed to end a dynasty. The fact that there was no repeat of Bosworth is not because Henry VII was a particularly popular king, because he wasn't really, but more to do with the policies he put into effect to prevent such an event occurring again. The Wars of the Roses did not end by accident, but because of a combination of factors, one of which was how Henry ruled England. Let's remember that Henry VII was probably the least experienced king England had ever seen. Even Henry VI knew something about kingship and government. He was just useless at it. Henry Tudor had not even run a baronial estate, let alone a kingdom. But, unlike his earlier namesake, Henry was smart. And he was a smart king. So, what did a smart king do next? Well, in his next parliament, in November 1487, the rebels were attainted. No big deal there, since rebels nearly always were. Next, an act was passed to give certain members of the king's council special powers to investigate and deal with anyone acting against the king or stirring up unrest. Henry then went ahead to plan the coronation of his Yorkist queen, who had been the mother of his heir for over a year. It was time to formalise the union with York. Since the most recent threat had been launched from Ireland, where his lords were clearly hostile to their king, it made sense also to try to bring Ireland back under royal control. It was sensible, but far from easy. Henry asked the Pope to excommunicate the Irish bishops who had been involved in crowning Simnel, and by January 1488 his request had been granted. But he also had to bring to heel the rebel Irish lords, which was almost all the Irish lords. In June 1488, Henry sent a trusted member of the royal household to Ireland. Now, lest there is any confusion here, a member of the household did not mean a valet or lavatory attendant. The men of the royal household were trusted knights and squires upon whose loyalty the king could utterly depend. Remember how many of Edward IV's household men had risked everything to actively oppose Richard III's takeover in 1483, and many in the end had joined Henry in exile. And in the last stand at Bosworth, it was Richard III's own household knights who fought to the end by his side. Anyway, Henry sent his household man, Sir Richard Edgecombe, to Ireland with 500 men. His task was to offer pardons to those who would submit and take an oath of loyalty to Henry, and arrest those who would not. By the end of July, Edgecombe was able to return to England, leaving Ireland loyal once again, at least in theory. Because Gerald Fitzgerald, the all-powerful Earl of Kildare, decided to make his peace with the king, and so the rest of the lords followed his lead. What did that mean exactly? It meant that Kildare remained as the king's deputy in Ireland, but acknowledged allegiance to the new king. So for Kildare, it meant that despite his treason, normal service was resumed. It had been a dodgy couple of years for Henry, but he had survived and could hope for better news in the future. 
he didn't get any. 